This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 18th of August. And I've got my trusty cup of coffee and my co-host Dave, who is joining me today to talk about... Well, what are we going to talk about? Well, so I have a question for you, which is, which are you most happy to have? Is it me or is it your cup of coffee? Uh, let's discuss that after recording this episode, or maybe we wouldn't have an episode. So, you, of course, obviously, I mean, I can replace coffee and I could also. <laughs> oh, dear. And the hits keep on coming. Anyway, hey, yes, heat. welcome. We're here, as uh, the somewhat ever so slightly clickbaity title might, uh, might lead you to believe. We're here to talk about containers and Kubernetes. This is, I think, something that we've we've touched on a number of times before, but I don't know that we've gone quite this deep into it. So uh, let's uh, let's see let's see how we get on here. This is a a topic that we've been working on or around for quite some time uh, in various forms, and I'm sure we'll be touching on that as we run through it. And it's something that I think now feels like it's been around forever. And, there's uh, certainly some good reason for that, but we've not really sort of gone through the the story from the very beginning, and I think it's quite an interesting one that is that shows some some quite cool patterns. So I think it's a story worth telling. Yeah, and of course, it's the week of KubeCon, Cloud NativeCon, happening virtually all over the world, and mm-hmm. that's why we thought it was a good idea. Well, everybody is talking about the most high-tech <laughs> things you can do with Kubernetes. Let's go basic. Let's go level 101 and talk about what this thing actually is. Because I do still think it has merit, an episode like this, because when I talk to my uh, customers, users, meetups, whatever, there's still a lot of confusion about the differentiation between virtual machines, Linux jails, containers, when to do what. And I end up quite often disappointing people when they think, well, I'll just press that button container and then it works, right? That's easy. It's easier than doing it the other ways. Well, no, maybe not. If you want to know more, you have to listen to the episode. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's, let's start. Let's start at well, the very start, beginning. If you have seen us at the boot already today, hi again. If you haven't, you got a boot at KubeCon. Say hi, leave a note. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I spend time and effort on this. I want to publicize it a little bit. Fair enough. Fair enough. We are partnering, of course. All right. So, virtualization. Where where do you, where do you start? It it's the most it's the most fundamental element of everything that, that we're talking about over the next couple of episodes. Virtualization is where it all begins, and uh, it's been around for again similar to some of the other technologies that we're going to be talking about, it's been around for a very long time. Um, Originally, virtualization was actually used on mainframes back in the 1960s, and uh, IBM CP or CMS systems were using uh, the virtualization approach to time sharing back then. Mm -hmm. So virtualization is, is is not in any way, shape or form new. What's new is uh, its its application and the way that we're uh, we're seeing it used nowadays. Yeah, and 
uh, when I was thinking about this episode, I thought starting with virtual machines is a good idea because virtual machines are, thanks to the big public clouds out there, quite well known. People usually understand more what a virtual machine is than they understand what a container or a containerized environment is. So by starting with virtual machines and to be honest, the whole reason that containerization has become popular later days is to alleviate some of the issues and problems that virtual machines bring with them. I mean, no technology is perfect. They all have the goods and bad parts. And the hope, idea, expectation is that the containers are able to step up where virtual machines actually um, have their deficits. But so before we love, uh, dive into the containers, let's have a quick talk about the virtualizations. And, um, Do you want to zoom yourself? Sorry? Give the audience a bigger picture of your, your smiling, happy face talking about virtualization. Ta-da! <laughs> there we go. See, that's the diff that's a problem when I'm doing orchestration, I forget it. But it's okay, my trusty co-host is here to help me. So yeah, virtualization, it's been used a lot in the past already, but uh, most people today probably know it from their own desktops. Things like VirtualBox or Parallels if you're using a Mac. It's very easy to deploy virtual machines these days. Of course, Windows has uh, Hyper-V, also a virtualization layer. And Hyper-V is also one of the three big ones which are used in the well, very big data center, whatever environments you may have there, together with KVM, which is the uh, kernel virtualization module, mostly worked upon by Red Hat, I'd say. And you did used to have a thing called Xen. I'm not entirely sure if it still exists or is relevant, to be honest. I know Citrix at a certain point uh, acquired them and then divested it again. And to be honest, I mean, Zen. So Zen is either irrelevant or is incredibly relevant, depending on your perspective on things. Because one of the things that not everybody is aware of, AWS is still built on a, True. albeit a sort of uh, somewhat distant now fork of uh, the original Zen code. It is it is all on Zen. I'm sure it looks absolutely nothing like the uh, the Zen that uh, came out of uh, Zen source back in the day, but it is still Zen based. They, they never made the move to KVM. Yeah, that's a good one. I forgot that. And actually, that means that KVM is the poor child here, because Xen, AWS, Hyper-V, well, Azure is based on Hyper-V. Who'd have thought? KVM, as far as I know, I mean, Google is using everything based on containers, aren't they? They're not even doing virtualization with the hypervisor. I don't know. I don't. They know. always say it's all Kubernetes-based. Well, not Kubernetes, but they're... I've had a different name when they started the project. I forget it. Sorry about that. Borg? But yeah, Borg. And that's supposedly not virtualization. So anyway, not to, not to deviate too far from our track here. So we still have oh, to yeah, keep it in the 30 so minutes. Good at that. <laughs> um, advantage of virtual machines, obviously, the biggest advantage is it's very portable. If you make a virtual machine, you build an image and you can just copy that file and boot it somewhere else, as long as you're using the same hypervisor, of course. It's not possible, as far as I understand, to have a Hyper-V virtual machine image running on the KVM of Xen or something like that. But it's a single image. It's fully contained. It has its own kernel, hosts, um, binaries, everything you might want in their applications. 
and that's all beautiful and wonderful. So what what possible problems could it be with virtual machines? Well, I, so before we necessarily go into that, there's there's uh-huh. probably another element worth talking about, which is the the so there are categories of virtualization. You you've got sort of full full virtualization, which is where you've got uh, an, an underlying hypervisor layer that works directly with the servers or the machine's physical CPU and disk, and it provides an element that then the virtual machines can then sit on top of. You've got para-virtualization, which is where you've got uh, the guests are aware of each other and aware of the underlying host OS. So they they need additional drivers, if you like, to be aware, to be able to run in that mode. Um, the the sort of the advantages are usually that full virtualization is slightly slower, and para virtualization is is slightly quicker, um, just because you've got those additional levels of sort of optimization in place. And then just to just to make things awkward, there's also OS virtualization, which is where the the I guess the hypervisor technology is actually built into the OS itself, so you you sort of you 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 have limitations in that you can only virtualize things at the same OS uh, type, but it does mean that you can spin up you know many of those things, so you don't get a heterogeneous um, environment. It's only a homogeneous environment, but it does give you that additional flexibility. Yeah, I think the main difference for para virtualization is indeed it's a speed layer, and the reasoning behind there is that if you don't have para drivers, you kind of have to either communicate directly with the underlying hardware, which might have some security issues. I mean, just imagine sharing a network yeah. card, and on hardware level, there's been a couple of things happening, like uh, um, single root I/O virtualization or SRIOV yeah. that allows you to put firewall rules on top of virtual devices in your network card and then have those shared as a PCI card. And basically the main problem I've always had with virtualization is just that getting access to your host devices, uh, USB ports, network cards, video cards, things like that. And that's also what's been improving mostly in the last couple of years, because to be honest, virtualization that exists in the 60s hasn't changed that much. But having access to those uh, host devices in a safe way, that's something that changed a Mm. lot. The problem there is that it gets slow because you have to pass through a number of layers there from the <clears throat> uh, guest OS drivers to the guest OS kernel to the host OS drivers to the host OS kernel to the hardware. And yeah. that's where it delays. And the idea of having para virtualization is that you have a driver that kind of takes away the hardware layer in the guest part. So the guest OS uses the para virtual driver to talk to its counterpart running on the host. So you need to have them in pairs and then directly to the hardware on the host. So it's an it's a acceleration thing. But to make those run, you have to make sure you have uh, CPUs that are built behind it, uh, well, after 2000, let's say, so it's not that big of a problem anymore. But that's where the BIOS yeah. settings for VDD, VTX, IMMU, PCI sharing, that kind of stuff come in. If you don't have that running, then you can only do the slower uh, hardware sharing. and. Uh, when we say slower, we do mean slower because it does make it's a big hit. The virtualization makes it a lot faster. When today we say that virtualization doesn't really slow down anything noticeably, 
that's mostly due to the pretty good power virtualization drivers have today, I think. Yeah. It's also, I think, worth talking a little bit about, and this this does mean that we will end up jumping backwards and forwards in time, but hey, I'm sure our listeners can come with us on a, a time travel journey here. The One of the reasons that virtualization, like despite the fact that it's been around for a very long time, one of the reasons it seemed to have such a resurgence is Moore's law and computing power as a whole continued to see the rise and rise and rise again of uh, computing power throughout the sort of the, the 2000s. And what we what we started to see is that in a lot of cases, the workloads that people were running weren't really necessarily increasing at the same rate that the computing power that was available to them were. were. So you ended up in this kind of strange situation where a lot of people were running workloads on big beefy servers because they'd always bought big beefy servers. And they were finding that actually these servers were not being able to be sort of uh, utilized particularly well. As anyone that's spent any time looking at data center optimization, one of the things that you really want to do is to try and get that sort of 80 80 to 90%, if you can, safely sort of utilization uh, number of, sort of, of your resources to make sure that you're not you know, just spinning, uh, spinning disks and, uh, and burning power just for the sake of it. You want to make sure that you're using as, as much as is possible of your infrastructure. And so w- what we started to see was the, the rise of, of virtualization, and, and at least in my opinion, because organizations were trying to get a better sort of handle on their the use of their assets that they'd already that they already bought and that were continuing to buy, and it, the efficiency of having one big box that can run lots and lots of different workloads was well established versus buying lots and lots of smaller devices and and the the overhead of managing them and keeping them up and running and all those kind of things. So there's 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 some really interesting, at least to me. Um, really interesting sort of changes I think that happened that forced the the sort of resurgence if you like or the um, the focus on virtualization for a lot of large enterprises I, I do remember one amusing point where uh, a very large financial services organization in in the UK uh, that was based in in Canary Wharf was suddenly told, uh, their entire sort of tech division was suddenly told, yeah, no more hardware for you. Like we've literally run out of power in all of our data centers. <laughs> so there's there's going to be no more hardware coming in unless you start throwing hardware out. And the, the, they were literally looking at, it didn't matter what the thing was running, whatever piece of hardware was running, they literally started to make a list of, okay, what hardware in our data centers is consuming the most power, and they started literally unplugging them and throwing them out the window into the the nearest skip and replacing them with. Uh, and the, most of the stuff that they were ripping out and replacing was very large, um, sort of old um, Unix servers of some way, shape, form, or description. And they were still running things that were critical to the business, but they had a, suddenly a rapid 
shift to okay like we can't yes this stuff all runs fine for us but things being what they are now we just can't afford to continue running them because it will slow the rest of the business down so if we want to keep on growing we've got to kick off a project migrate this stuff really quickly that nobody's touched in 20 years or so and and you know get the hardware out so we can carry on growing and putting new hardware in and this is one example but it's a story that i saw repeated a lot throughout the the sort of uh, early to late 2000s yeah i think it's also a bit of a feedback loop from the vendors as well when they saw that virtualization was uh, taking off they started making bigger iron to be able to yeah. put more virtualization and kind of reinforced itself and of course culminating yeah. now in the big cloud providers where I mean these servers in the Amazon Azure Google centers they're nothing like a PC right I mean they're just concentrations of as much cores and memory and not a little real estate as possible to run as much you can and this uh, also you, you say better utilization of the, the hardware you have the virtualization also makes it a step further by being allowed to overcommit stuff by yeah. having multiple, I mean, the whole idea being that not, uh, there isn't any application that's going to be using 100% of your CPUs all of the time. So yeah. if you can kind exactly. of make that work into each other, that works nicely. And of course, every operating system does it already. Most operating systems, Windows, Linux, whatever, they're multi-tenant, multitasking, multi-whatever schedulers. But if you are able to put multiple OSs or multiple compute blocks next to each other, again, adding, filling in the gaps, that again gives you an extra optimization step uh, to realize the full potential of your hardware. I see what I did there. Yeah, I do, I do. And this is one of the, the sort of the first cases where you you start to see things like the, the noisy neighbor um, mm -hmm. issue, which isn't uh, which isn't your next door neighbors having a really loud party at, at four in the morning. I mean, it could be, but in this particular sense, what we're talking about is we're talking about a a virtual instance or a virtual guest or a container or some form of instance on a physical device that is consuming more than perhaps its fair share or more than its perhaps expected share of utilization at the same time as some other device is looking for that that sort of additional burst of power whether that's disk I.O., whether that's CPU, whether that's memory, whether it's all three or anything in between, the the challenges that run through all of these technologies that we that we're going to be talking about are are all they all have this noisy neighbor challenge and you're always looking for sort of the the balance on the one side you want to to sort of increase the the, the utilization that you have of things. And on the other side, you never want to be in the position where your your environment is throttled or constrained due to some of these considerations. So it, it's always kind of shifting backwards and forwards as to just how much you can load these things up. And I think the, 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 cha the challenges or the changes that we've seen is that now now we tend to see the the, the world of, of microservices and we're getting down to that further down the line, but it's far more fluid than it was, in, I would say, in the early days of virtualization. 
Well, there's more checks and balances available, as you say, we're going to talk about that later. Just uh, one detailed thing about overcommitting, overcommitting, you said throttling, and basically, do you want to avoid throttling completely? Maybe not, maybe you're okay that everything runs 80% mm. less than what they could be. And on CPU level, that's okay, you can overcommit CPU almost infinitely, well, there's going to be a borderline somewhere where it really freezes up, but you can do a lot of overcommit on CPU, which will uh, give you throttling effects if everything goes slower, slower, slower until it's no longer feasible and you stop overcommitting, basically. On memory, it's a lot harder. If you overcommit your memory, well, a bit in your dim stick is a bit in your dim stick and you can't put two pieces of information in the same bit there. So if you overcommit and by chance or coincidence, all of the applications that are trying to use that same RAM are actually filling it up and you don't have swap available, the uh, well-known OOM killer will come along, the out-of-memory killer, and it will just kill, start killing processes. And that's just like if on a normal uh, OS you're running out of memory and swap, it's going to kill processes. It's going to happen the same way if you use virtualization. The problem is that it gets uh, even worse because on the chassis, just without virtualization, you don't know what's going to crash, but at least you know it's going to be something on that box. If you have multiple virtual machines that do migrations, you don't know what runs where anymore. Something will mysteriously disappear for killer reasons, and you have no idea why or what. So it's always a lot uh, easier to overcommit your CPU uh, and mm. networking, for instance, because that will just give you slowdowns. But be careful with memory and coming from a cloud background. That's the one where they actually have the balloon driver and things like that to make sure that a VM can be assigned two gigs of RAM and really claim it and nobody can touch this just to make sure that that you don't avoid it completely because within the VM you can still overcommit or oversubscribe to your memory that's available. But you don't want to avoid the noisy neighbor killing your process due to him taking uh, uh, more RAM, of course. Yeah, I, I think the the other thing to remember is that the 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 challenge that you have with the the noisy neighbor sort of situation and and stuff being killed, you know, you surely you just download more RAM and then and then you're done. Like RAM RAM doubling software has been around for ages. <laughs> yeah, I've got a USB stick here somewhere with eight terabytes of storage on it. It's called DevNull. Yeah, there you go. Really fast to back up to. Yeah. Actually, uh, restorations are a bit tricky. I read a great article a couple of days ago about how DevNull is totally asset compliant and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Uh, anyway, moving on. Uh, yeah. Not that we ever get, uh, of course, get yeah, distracted. I think we're going to have to cut this episode into more parts than we were thinking about, um, which is not a bad thing because... But uh, we're talking about all the positives about virtualization so far. And obviously, if it was only positive, then we would never have needed anything else. So what is the problem with a virtual machine? I, I mean, there are, lots of, there are lots of problems. Many of them, in, again, in my opinion, many of the problems with virtualization were actually a product of how people saw virtualization. And that it, I talked earlier about the, the sort of situation of people just uh, wanting to deploy more workloads on larger hardware and this being a, a way for them to do that. And because of that, 
if you like, lift and shift style mentality. I think what we saw a lot in the, uh, especially in the early days of virtualization, but honestly, I still see it in container land today, dis disturbingly enough, is people just taking the same um, sort of processes, procedures, provisioning methods, configuration management methods, if any, and just applying them to the new virtual machine world. And they ended up with the same hideous, bloated, hmm. um, badly managed, crappy experience. But now they've got it at a hideous scale that's even more complicated and difficult for them to manage. I think we also saw a lot of challenges around, um, again, this is probably the early days of virtualization. There was not a lot of um, additional features and functionality back in the, the sort of first phases of virtualization that helped deal with things like single points of failure. If you, one of your large um, sort of physical uh, hosts goes down, then all of a sudden, well, you've just lost a giant chunk of your infrastructure. And early on, people weren't really thinking about that. They were, they were relying on all of their hardware being there all of the time. We, we sometimes talk about cattle, not pets. And we were still very much in the, the pets era here, mm -hmm. even with sort of virtualization. Yeah. People really wanted to make sure that all servers had, you know, 99 point infinite nines uptime, multiple redundancies everywhere. Everything was, you know, hideously expensive because it was made to be incredibly resilient. And yet, you know, things happen, hardware fails, cleaners unplug power sockets um, to racks uh, or trip over network ports, uh, network cables that were poorly laid in data centers. You know, all these terrible, terrible things happen. And I, I certainly saw a significant degree of uh, things going wrong due to those sort of uh, those sort of challenges. I would say that a lot of this did get much, much better throughout the, the time the virtualization was the king. Uh, we, st we started to see things like um, live migration being um, sort of very, uh, very possible. And, you know, we started to see that being automated. We started to see um, a lot more tooling and sort of advanced uh, work happening in the virtualization space that made life much, much easier for people who are operating virtualized environments. But the early days were still very, very fraught with dragons and uh, danger and uh, things going horribly wrong. <laughs> yeah, and the problem also was that the, the migration was the only kind of top-level control you had, the virtual machines, because they were totally isolated from the operating system. There was no way of having a kind of orchestrator, let's use the word orchestrator, because that's what can up, end up anyway, to manage things like auto-repairing, things like that. Because these virtual machines, well, you could put it somewhere else, and that was pretty much all you could do. But the, the tight uh, connection to disk devices that were shared and things like that made it very hard to have a kind of stateful cluster running of any way, shape, or form, and have migrations actually work successfully. Because if you have a, a, let's go back to Hadoop, the granddaddy here, 
if you have a Hadoop cluster on virtualization nodes and one of those nodes suddenly gets migrated somewhere else, that's gonna create havoc on your cluster because those uh, cattle-based cluster systems, they're not used to working that way because they're supposed to have a chassis uh, server on all their own, do heartbeating things like that. And migration uh, technology, yeah, it works, but it's not the, the the best solution out there. Let's say, especially if you are if your if your virtual machines get smaller and smaller and smaller, and that I think is the reason that we are going more to containers these days. That's the size of the application running in your virtual machines. Which is totally right. Yeah. In the olden days, the lift and shift method of just take the server, virtualize it, and run it somewhere else now. I guess that was a good way. I don't know. You you gave plenty of examples why it's not a good way. Yeah. But over time, people kind of saw the light and uh, started moving more and more to that microservice architecture, which we're going to talk about more in detail later. And that meant that the virtual machines got smaller and smaller. Instead of having a virtual machine that did a mail server, a web server, a puppet server, whatever, no, you had a single virtual machine doing just the mail server, a virtual machine doing just that uh, web server. Even the web server got split out, have a virtual machine for the internal internet and one for the external website and so on. So the virtual machine payload, if you want to, got smaller and smaller, while the overhead, the kernel layer, the, the OS libraries and things like that, those remain the same. And while in the original virtual machines you might have, I don't know, 10 gigabytes of OS and, I don't know, 200 gigabytes of uh, application level stuff, over time you kind of saw that migrate from, uh, from that to 10 gigabytes OS stuff to a couple of megabytes, a couple of hundred megabytes for that Nginx server, and that was about it. So at that point, the virtual machines became a heavy solution where you were, instead of using your hardware more optimal, as you explained before, getting mm -hmm. more usage out of it, you're actually getting less and less use out of it because that sim that kernel and OS uh, software was running 20 times, 20 copies totally separate from each other, so it had to be completely uh, deployed every single time to have that thin layer of application running on top of it. And that's where virtual machines started to get a lot of uh, how do you call it? Gain wind uh, against wind, wind against them. Yeah, I'm not a native English speaker. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Headwind. Headwind. Thank you. And that's where uh, the containerization really took off. But looking at our time, I think we should. One, uh, one, 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 one last thing. You can. You, so, uh, that's what I'm saying. You can finish it off with one last thing, and then. Uh, yeah. So this, I think, is. The, the, the world of virtualization and the crossover between that and a sort of the cloud world, I think, is, is really interesting because as virtualization matured, what you started to see was um, a, a sort of an early predecessor of what we now see very clearly in the cloud world, and that's the separation of compute and storage. You started to see as virtualization matured, the compute device was separated from the storage. Now, back in the day, most of that you know, early stages was fiber channel networks and storage arrays on the back end, you know, storage area networks or SANs as they were called. Uh, and I say as they were called and refer to them in the previous notice because I hope they are all dead, dead, dead. 
storage area networks, fiber channel networks. It's all horrible, horrible, horrible stuff. Oh, I anybody stuck in that sort of world, I, I, I'm very, very sorry. I hope they let you out soon. Um, but it was a a very um, it was a very interesting shift that was made because of that sort of heaviness, if you like, that Jon was talking about regarding you know migrating and that sort of thing. If you've got to migrate, you know, a ten gigs of of OS, and that suggests it's quite a lightweight deployment. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but let's say you know ten gigs of OS and two hundred gigs of of application data and binaries, no, that's a that's a huge shift to make. But if your your you know your device is or your infrastructure is split up in a way that your compute all runs on one set of servers and your storage is on a an incredibly highly available um, storage you know storage fabric backend, then you know compute devices can die they can be spun back up again on other compute devices the storage doesn't need to migrate because it's available on a separate environment uh, and that works really well as long as you follow a whole laundry list of there be dragons uh challenges with with that sort of approach and it's 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 for me. It's interesting because it's a very early predecessor, predecessor to what we now see as being incredibly common in the in the cloud native space. That separation of compute and storage, we for the most part just take as as gospel. Now we take that as being that that's just the way that things are. But yeah, it wasn't always the way, and I think virtualization was the, the first uh, real point where we started to see that uh, coming towards the mainstream. Well, yeah, if you want to do migration, you need to have your storage somewhere centralized so you could reconnect the new CPU compute box to the old thing, right? Uh, I'm kind of surprised you're so negative about the storage area networks. Before those, we had the NASAs, the network attached storage, you know, uh, NFS shares. And actually, NFS say that NASA is still alive and kicking. Come on. Uh, NFS shares are beautiful if you want to do migrations. They're milliseconds, they're very fast. The only negative is that your VM will be slow as molasses in doing its entire lifetime. It works. SAN, the storage area networks, where you have your uh, devices as block devices shared to the uh, storage, uh, the, the compute layer, those are a big step up. That actually made your VM run relatively okay as long as your SAN was. Uh, reasonably expensive let's call it let's say to be honest <laughs> uh, but it made migration harder because if you couldn't just uh, i don't know reconnect your iscosi target then you might have to do a real hard copy but if you're so negative about sans and i'm assuming you see ceph and things like that also as a storage area network or um, no i'm unless i'm uh, what, what's, what's a good so thing my, my main so my main problem with 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 SANS is they were usually run by completely separate teams who had no real understanding about what was being done with them. They knew and cared about and fed and watered their SAN, but they had very little understanding and very little, and again, this is my my personal experience working with many, many, many organizations over the years uh, during this interesting time. And what you usually saw in these kind of situations is 
huge performance and configuration challenges where the storage admins would say, no, no, everything's fine. There's no problems at all. I, I, I'm, I'm looking at my dashboard here and there's, there's no problems. And the, the people on the virtualization side were, were screaming because performance was terrible or they, they, they couldn't get the, the response they need or they didn't have the, um, the sort of the throughput or the, the sort of all sorts of challenges that they had. And it's more of an organizational okay. cool. uh, challenge than anything else. The underlying technology was sound. But the majority of organizations, the way they deployed them, the way they run them, the way they operated them, meant that I very rarely saw a, a good, a really good experience in, yeah. in that world, in, in the real world. Yeah, it's one of those places where DevOps really paid off in the end. And that's without Dev, but just Ops talking to each other, the Compute Ops and the Storage yeah. Ops communicating and yeah. having the same goals and destinations in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, contrary to the title, Intro to Containers Kubernetes, we haven't talked about containers at all yet, so that is still coming up, but we are keeping these oh, short... Oh, such clickbait, such <laughs> clickbait. I'm going to keep... This is going to be a multi-part uh, episode, I think. We're going to be lock, looking at jails, containers, uh, microservice fabrics, orchestrations, and Kubernetes, of course, over the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned for the next episode in this exciting... Um, Saga? Let's call the saga. So I'm glad you didn't put a number on it because, uh, and you said saga instead of trilogy or anything else like that because uh, I don't actually know how long this uh, this particular set of episodes is going to go, but it's been uh, it's been interesting and fun reminiscing so far. Yeah, it's always fun how like ten lines of prep in the doc can expand and grow <laughs> to thirty minutes of us talking about. Hopefully interesting things. Yeah, well, in, vaguely interesting to us at least, and maybe interesting to other people. I guess we'll find Let's out. Hope. Okay, well, that is for me. Uh, you're doing the outro this time, so have at it. Oh, outro, <laughs> outro. Wherefore art thou outro? Well, that is indeed... Uh, all the time we have for today, despite the fact that we didn't get to anything that's in the title of this episode. You can support this badly titled podcast by becoming a Patreon. Every contribution helps, and maybe with more contributions, we'll actually talk about the things that we put in the title. We are on YouTube. You can see us. I do apologize in advance. Uh, please do like, subscribe, hit the notification bell, all the YouTube things. You can also go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page and for more information about the podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag and you can send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is at least para-virtualized Dave. <laughs> and my name is, I'm so happy Dave let me put my curtains in the image and hasn't commented about it at all. Yon. Oh, God, those curtains are terrible. I did think it, I just didn't say it, but now you've brought it up. Please, like, everybody comment on uh, on YouTube about what they think about Jan's curtains because I uh, they make my eyes bleed every time I see them. Anyway, we look forward to talking to you and hopefully not seeing Jan's curtains, but I have a fear that he will be showing them anyway next week. Goodbye. See you then. Thank you.